Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Fort St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Stronger. And I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 5 today. So Mark chapter 5, and the title of the message is simply, Stronger, Stronger. So Mark chapter 5. If you're new to Calvary, this is what we do probably 90% of the time is that we prayerfully pick books of the Bible. We start in chapter one, verse one, and then we go through verse by verse all the way through that book of the Bible. You say, why do you do that? Here's why. Because Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Jesus was praying for his disciples in John 17, He said, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And so um, we're very much into the word of God, uh, teaching it, explaining it, and letting the spirit of God take the word of God and do the work that only he can do in the hearts of the people of God. So Mark chapter five today. So as you're finding that, um, just a reminder, Camp Kid Jam, fourth and fifth graders are going. If God puts it on your heart and you wanna support one of those kids, great. They will be ready for you in the foyer, right through those doors, right after the service. And then, of course, Calvary Christian Academy, we're raising the money for our down payment. If you'd like to give towards Calvary Christian Academy, which, if you're visiting, is going to be our school that we're going to build across the street right here, Uh, you can go to our website and click on Future School. How's everybody doing today? Good. I'm doing great. If you're new to the Bible... This is going to be the weirdest message you've ever heard in your life. So I wanted to prepare you for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. So Father, we're grateful uh, that you're here with us. We're so grateful that we can gather together and worship you in spirit and in truth. That those of us who have been made alive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can actually sing songs straight from our heart to your heart and let you know how much we love you and how thankful we are for everything you've done for us. Lord, now um, we're asking that you would intervene in the second half of the service and that you would speak to us. Lord, I know there's all different kind of people from all different kind of backgrounds. Some have been walking with you for decades. Others, Lord, um, just a week or two. And some haven't made that decision yet. Lord, thank you that you meet us where we're at. And so we're grateful, Lord, that in spite of anything that we've done that's wrong, that Jesus, you came to seek and save those who are lost. And we're thankful for what you accomplished at the cross, shedding your blood so that we could be forgiven. And so, Lord, I pray that your name will be honored today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. All right, well, some of you may have read the very disturbing article uh, this past week about a little three-year-old girl from California who was almost kidnapped. And so she was there at a park in California, and all of a sudden, uh, a 26-year-old man walks up to this three-year-old girl and takes her by the hand 
and begins to skip with her. And so if you're a bystander and you don't know the family, you might think, well, you know, everything's okay. That's innocent enough until things got worse and the man literally started to drag this little three-year-old away. And so the mother and her boyfriend were nearby, thank God. They sprang into action. The boyfriend confronted the perpetrator, and the mother got on her phone and called the little girl's biological father, who lived just across the street from the park. And so Fred Cantrell, the biological father, comes running across the street to the park, and he confronts the perpetrator. And the guy's attitude, the guy that tried to take the little girl, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and was like, hey, no big deal, man. Try to laugh it off. And Cantrell said, and I quote, and I told him, wow, no big thing. You just tried to kidnap my daughter. And then the perpetrator got aggressive. He went to his pocket. He grabbed some handcuffs, wrapped them around his fist, and he charged at the father. This just happened um, a week ago Saturday. And the father obviously knew how to handle himself because one punch and the guy went down like a sack of potatoes. But this guy didn't quit. He got up again and he charged the father again. And once again, this time he got knocked down and this time he was out for the count until the police came. The perpetrator was arrested and charged with attempted kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon and his bail was set for $1.2 million dollars. The father said that later that, in, that night, he could hear his daughter, his little three-year-old daughter, crying out his name. And so he went in her room, he turned on the light, he said, honey, what's, what's wrong? And she said, daddy, I love you. And she gave him a kiss. And he said, honey, I love you too. And then the daughter said, daddy, don't ever let me go. And the father, as he shared that with the reporter, broke down in tears. Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So if you're new to the Bible, you're new to church, Christianity, and you didn't know this, you have an enemy. And the enemy has a plan for your life. And that is to steal, kill, and destroy you. But how many of you are thankful that Jesus came, that we may have life and have it more abundantly? And so on August 7th in California, an evil man actually tried to drag a little girl away. He tried to steal and kill and destroy her life. But thank God that her father came running across the street to rescue her and to give her the gift of life. This perpetrator thought he was so strong, but he found out that this little girl's father was stronger than him. On the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, in our passage today, there lived a man, and Satan was trying to destroy this man's life. We don't know the details. We don't know why, how it happened, but somehow, Many demons had come inside of this man into his soul, and his life was spiraling out of control. The demons came to steal and kill and destroy this man's life. But you need to know that on a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee that morning was someone who was stronger than the demons inside of this man. And this person, capital P, on this boat, 
with his 12 apostles was on a mission that day to seek and save a man who was lost. He didn't care what the guy had done. He didn't care how messed up this guy's life was. All he knew, all Jesus knew that day on that boat was that I love this guy and I want to set him free. And you may be here today and you may be all bound up in some kind of sin, whatever it might be. You may be here today and you don't even know if God exists. Well, whether or not you believe in God, he believes in you. And what you need to know is that he loves you and he's on a mission to seek and to save you. And I hope you'll let him do that. And so they pulled up, they docked their boat there on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They had come through a terrible storm the night before. And by the way, that was last week. Last week, uh, we covered uh, chapter uh, 4 in verses 35 through 41 in a message called Storms. And we talked about how important it is that when we're in a storm, that we don't lose faith in the Savior. If you weren't here last week, you got to go back to our website. you got to listen to that message or download our podcast because that's one of the most practical messages that I've ever taught in 14 years of ministry. And if you're going through a hard time, it'll really help you. Again, that's last week, and the, the message was called Storms. But today, we're in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And it says that they, that's Jesus and the disciples came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And so again, if you look at the map, you see the Sea of Galilee. You remember from last week that Jesus and the disciples were up on the northwestern shore in Capernaum, and then that night they had made their way to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's the region of the Gerasenes. Some of your translations, if you have King James or New King James, is the region of the Gadarenes. It's the same thing. You see Gadara down in the southeast, um, just about six miles from the tip of the southeast tip of the Sea of Galilee. And then you see the Decapolis there. This whole area here is the region of the Gadarenes or the region of the Gerasenes to the east of the Sea of Galilee and then to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And then the, the, the uh, Decapolis, right, in Greek, deca means 10, polis means city. And so the Decapolis was 10 Gentile cities in the time of Christ. 10 Gentile cities that were thoroughly pagan and had also been what's known as Hellenized. In other words, when Alexander the Great took over the world, I guess about 300 years or so prior to this, what happened is that he... Um, uh, spread the Greek language and the Greek culture all across uh, the civilized world at that time. Even after Rome defeated Greece in history, the, the, the Roman Empire was still thoroughly Hellenized. In other words, the Decapolis, these 10 cities, were pagan. The, the, the pagans, the Gentiles in this area spoke Greek, and they adopted the Greek culture. And so once again, as I said last week, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, uh, Gennesaret, etc., Magdala, those are predominantly Jewish people, but on the other side, the eastern side, that's predominantly Gentile territory. And so what you need to know, I brought all that up to tell you that every once in a while, Jesus would get in the boat and he'd go over to the eastern shore. 
Now, it's true that Jesus came primarily in his ministry for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but how many of you guys understand that God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son? And so Jesus loved both the Jews on the western side and the Gentiles on the eastern side, and that's why he would go over there every once in a while uh, to minister to the Gentiles. And so it was on that eastern shore that a tormented man lived, and we're now introduced to him in verse two. Check it out. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So Jesus gets out of the boat, and as soon as he does that, this guy <laughs> comes running up to him, and he's a, what's, what's known as a demoniac. Now, this story can be found in the synoptic gospels. That means Matthew, Mark, Luke all share this story. John does not share it. John, by the way, a very much different type of gospel than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but what you need to know is that Matthew says that there's actually two demoniacs. But Luke and Mark, they want to focus on the predominant guy here. And this guy was an absolute, total mess. So Luke t tells us that for a long time, he didn't wear any clothes. So the only thing that covered this guy's body were a bunch of scars, self-inflicted, we're going to find out, from when he would take sharp stones and he would cut himself. So he's covered with scars. You can imagine in your mind's eye, here's this, this demoniac, right? And he's covered with scars. He's covered with filth from living outside. His hair is messy and matted. His beard is unkempt and straggly. And his eyes are wild like an untamed animal. And so it says that he had an unclean spirit. So if you're brand new to the Bible, you might say, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it simply means this guy had a demonic being living inside of him. We're going to find out more than one. Where do demons come from? Well, it all started with an angel named Lucifer. You see, sometime in eternity past, God made the angels, and he made a beautiful angel, a perfect angel, and he named him Lucifer. And everything was great. Some scholars believe that Lucifer led the worship in heaven. And so everything was hunky-dory in heaven until Lucifer fell in love with himself. He became enamored with himself. The Bible says a pride entered into his heart. And by the way, when I think of like the top three things that describe our culture today in the United States of America, self-love is definitely up there in the top three. And so this guy fell in love with this angel, fell in love with himself, became enamored with himself, impressed with his beauty, his brightness, perhaps his musical gifts. And he decided one day as he's probably there leading the worship of God, at some point he decides, well, I should be worshiped too. And so what happened was he made these five famous I will statements. I think it's in Isaiah 14, but you can read more about Lucifer later uh, in the week, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. But the last of the famous five I will statements, and I quote, he says, I will make myself 
like El Elyon. I will make myself like the most high God. And so Lucifer, in his twisted mind, decided that he's going to usurp God's authority. And by the way, um, Lucifer is a demented, twisted, perverted angel, but he's a genius. And we don't know how, but somehow he deceived one-third of the angels, and they led a coup d'etat against God the Father. Now, how many of you guys know that God's stronger, right? And so, you know, maybe it was just with his little pinky, you know, just like, okay, time to go, and he kicks them out. Lucifer becomes Satan, and the fallen angels, they become demonic beings or unclean spirits. And where did they eventually go after being kicked out of heaven? Right here to planet Earth. You ever read the news and wonder why there's so much evil in our world? Here's one of the reasons. It's not just the perverted, fallen heart of man. It's the fact that fallen angels are here, demonic beings are here on planet Earth. You say, well, what are they doing here? They're, they're trying to destroy you. And they're trying to destroy your family and your kids. They're trying to steal and kill and destroy all of us. You see, Satan hates God. He got kicked out of heaven. He got humiliated. He's all into himself. What happens when you um, offend someone who's in love with themselves? They become humiliated because it's all about me and you just offended me. And so he knows that he cannot defeat God, he can't destroy God, and so what does he do? He goes after God's kids. And so that's, that's why they're here on this planet, and in his attempt to destroy humanity, most of the time, uh, Satan will op oppress. Satan and demons will oppress people, but sometimes they will actually possess a person. And in our passage today, I told you it's gonna be a little strange, but in our passage today, we have a clear demonstration of a demon possessed person. And Mark gives us the description of this guy starting in verse three. It says that he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him and night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this guy was so out of control, he became a threat to his community. He really needed to be locked up. And so the local authorities tried to bind him with a chain, but every time they, they, they cornered him and got him down, put a chain around him, he snapped the chain. He broke the shackles. And not only that, but he'd beat everybody up that tried to come get him because he had supernatural strength. And so finally, they let this guy alone, and there he is in our passage, and he's roaming the mountains on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's crying out at night, no doubt because he's cutting himself with sharp stones. And so we see in this passage that there's at least six manifestations of demonic influence. Now, I understand the Bible's a big book, and there's a lot, a lot of other manifestations of demonic influence, but we're just in Mark 5, 1 through 20 today, 
And so from this particular passage, let's look at these six manifestations of demonic influence. Number one, uh, self-destructive habits. And so this guy was cutting himself with stones. We all know about the, um, uh, the, the phenomenon, the sad phenomenon today of how, how people who are under psychological uh, duress somehow find comfort in cutting themselves physically. Not only that, but violence. This guy was so fierce that no one could pass by the way. Whenever someone even got near him, he, he wanted to fight. He wanted to beat him up. Not only that, but antisocial behavior. It says in Luke that he had been driven by the demon into what kind of places? So this guy always wanted to be alone. And what's one of the common things we always hear about serial killers after they're caught? He's he's such a loner. He's always by himself. Fascination with death is number four. Mark tells us that he lived among the tombs. And then this is interesting, number five, immodesty. Luke tells us that for a long time he had worn no clothes. And then number six, he's out of control. And with his supernatural strength, he would fend people off. It says that nobody had the strength uh, to subdue him. Now please understand that there's a difference between demonic possession and demonic oppression. Possession comes from within. Oppression uh, comes from without. And so if somebody has one, two, or more of these traits, you need to understand that it doesn't automatically mean, well, that guy is possessed by demons. No, it could be that they're just being oppressed by a demonic entity. Now, I have to say uh, right now, and I I have to say this anytime we come uh, to these types of stories in the Gospels, because we have visitors every week who do do not know this truth, but let me say it again. I just said it about two months ago. And that is that if you have done this, okay, so you're going one way and you hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and you stop and you turn around, best way you know how, you say, I'm I'm turning my back on my old life and I'm turning to Jesus. I'm turning to Jesus, and some of you haven't done this, you need to do this. I'm turning to Jesus as my savior because he died for my sins and rose again. And I'm turning to Jesus as my master and my Lord. He's the boss of my life. Okay, so if you have done that, it's called repentance and faith. You have received Christ. You need to know that you are born again, and a born-again believer cannot ever be possessed by a demon. Just can't happen. Here's why. Because if you're a born-again Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. There is absolutely no way that an unclean spirit can inhabit, dwell, live in the same place as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not allow it. Now, having said that, we cannot forget that our adversary, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, is like a devil prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. And so be sober, be vigilant, uh, because our adversary is like a roaring lion prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. And who, who more does, does the, 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 pro, the prowling lion want to devour than, than God's kids? 
And so even though he can't come inside of you, you need to know that he's prowling around and he's waiting to pounce. That's the bad news. The good news is in James 4, 7 and 8, the Bible promises that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. That is a promise of God that you need to memorize and you need to know. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He may seem like a big, bad, fearful lion, but he's got to put his tail between his legs and run away when you resist him. And by the way, that's verse 7, James 4, 8. The very next verse says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Why does the devil put his tail between his legs and run away? He does that when we draw near to God because he's no match for God. And so this guy, this was not his testimony. He was lost. He was a pagan. And the demons inside of him were strong. But these demons are about to meet someone who's way stronger. Look at verse 6. It says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Stop right there. Do you guys notice that in the gospels that the demon's theology is always perfect? Do you notice that? Their Christology, their doctrine, their teaching of Christ is always right on. Jesus is the the only son of the most high God. Absolutely. And yet, James tells us, you believe in God? Well, great, the devils believe and tremble. Do you hear that? You believe in God? Great. The devils believe and tremble. How many of you guys know the devils believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Right? They have intellectual assent. They know who he is. And so James' point is, hey, You may believe some facts in your head. You may have some theology down. By the way, the Pharisees were astounding intellectual theologians. They had a lot of facts about God in their head, and yet when his son came, they rejected his son. And so, so many people, I've said this a thousand times, will miss heaven from the distance from a person's head to their heart. 16, 18 inches. Why? Because they know facts in their head about God, but they don't know God in their heart. They don't have a relationship with the Lord. And so I encourage you, don't just know about God in your head. Turn from your sins, turn to Christ alone, and start a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this demon is saying, and now we're looking at verse 7 again. He's crying out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus, in verse eight, was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so the Lord wanted to set this guy free, and so as soon as he gets out of the boat, Jesus uh, says to him, come out of the man. And you need to know that Christ is omnipotent. So that means that he's all-powerful, And his words are powerful. So as soon as he said, come out of the man, the demons inside of this guy that were holding on to his soul, they could feel that their grip was loosening. And they started to freak out. 
And so one of them is a spokesperson, and apparently this one demon takes control of this guy's vocal cords and once again begins to shout out through this guy at Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I, look at this. I adjure you by God, right? Do not torment me. Don't torment me. They're such wimps. <laughs> Don't torment me. They're so self-centered. Listen, they have no problem tormenting this man. And now they don't want to be tormented? What's up with that? This, this guy in California has no problem tormenting a little three-year-old girl. But I bet you he didn't like it when he got knocked to the ground twice. And I bet you he doesn't like it when he's going to sit in rotten prison for how many years? You should pray for that guy. And he comes to know the Lord also and that he would allow God to change his heart. I mean, how evil can a person be to want to hurt a little three-year-old girl? And parents, if you got little kids, watch your kids. There are creeps everywhere. Keep an eye on your kids. And so this guy's like, this, this demon's like, don't torment me, don't torment me. To the Lord, and now in verse 9, Jesus asks him, well, what's your name? And he replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I don't know if he's trying to intimidate the Lord, like, oh, well, better watch out. There's lots of us down here. Um, but that's going to go over um, not too good. And so in verse 9, um, he says, I am Legion. All right, so a Roman Legion is made up of up to 6,000 men. The Roman legion was the largest unit within the Roman army. It's not always 6,000 men. Sometimes it might be 5,000, but it's up to sometimes including 6,000 men. Now, the demons did not say, um, you know, we are a Roman legion. They, the spokesperson said, I am legion for we are many. And so some scholars think, well, there's 6,000 demons in this guy, not 6,001, just 6,000, I don't really agree. I just think there's a lot of demons inside of this guy. There's many. And by the way, one's too many. And so now in verse 10, it says that he, that's the demon, begged him, that's Jesus, earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now this is fascinating, let's park here for a little while. Why didn't the demons want to be sent out of the country? Why didn't these demons want to be sent out of the region of the Gerasenes to the east and south, southeast of the Sea of Galilee? Well, perhaps it's because that was the place, the geographical place that Satan had assigned to them, and they did not want to leave and become derelict in their duty. Now, Whenever you share a biblical worldview with people, you can't just share the good part of the biblical worldview, you also have to share the bad part of the biblical worldview. And so what you need to know if you're new to the Bible is that in Ephesians 2.2, Satan is called, and I quote, the prince of the power of the air. Okay, that's one of his titles. He is the prince of the power of the air. And the fall that happened when Adam 
deliberately disobeyed God, willfully sinned against God, there was a fall that occurred. And part of that fall was that Adam gave some of his dominion over to the, the, the serpent, Lucifer, the snake, Satan, to the point where John says in 1 John 5, 19, and I quote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, ladies and gentlemen. Again, you watch the news, 95% of it, good or bad, you, you tell me. It's all bad news, almost all of it. Why? I'm, I'm sharing with you part of the reason why. And so Satan is not omniscient. He's not like God. He has no attributes of God. He can only be in one place at one time. And so how can Satan have influence over the whole world? He does it through a network of demonic beings. How many of you guys believe that this is God's word? Okay, and so um, look at what God's word says about these demonic beings in Ephesians 6, 12. First of all, we do not wrestle. He's talking to Christians here in the church of Ephesus. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now just stop right there for a second. That's the, that was probably worth the price of admission for some of you. Because you think, husband, the problem is your wife. And you think, wife, the problem is with your husband. Or you think, parents, the problem is with your rebellious teenager. Or you think that the problem is with your boss at work who's acting like a jerk. Right, and so what are you doing? You're always fighting, you're always arguing and striving and wrestling against flesh and blood. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, hey, Christian, we're not supposed to be fighting against flesh and blood. In other words, husband, stop yelling at your wife, dishonoring your wife, stop throwing things, stop losing your cool. Your, your fight's not against your wife. Ladies, Stop nagging your husbands. Stop nitpicking them all the time, trying to start an argument. Your fight's not against your husband. You know, stop blaming everything on your rebellious teenager. It's a stage. Go back, listen to last week's sermon, the storm, you're in a storm, guess what? Jesus can quiet the storm and all storms eventually end. Just get through the stage. Don't fight against your teenager. Stop fighting against your boss or your coworker or the person on Facebook who's gossiping about you. Or, you know, our, our, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Where's the fight? Here it is. We wrestle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And by the way, the present darkness one day will end. Jesus is coming. This present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in what kind of places? Heavenly places. And so if you and I could look up into the heavens and we, like Elisha's servant in the Old Testament, could be given spiritual eyes and see in the spirit realm, I've said it before, it would freak us out. Because the book of Daniel teaches that there is warfare going on in the heavenlies. That there's holy angels that are fighting against unholy angels. Unholy angels like uh, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece and holy angels like Michael and Gabriel. 
And so in Daniel chapter 10, I encourage you to read it later. I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the Bible. But in Daniel chapter 10, the prince of Persia is described. And so who's the prince of Persia? It's a demonic overlord that's been assigned to the Persian Empire back when they existed. And then it talks about the prince of Greece. Who's that? A demonic overlord who's been assigned to the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great defeated the Persians. And so the Bible teaches that certain demons have been assigned to certain geographical areas, and perhaps that's why in our passage today, maybe that's why Legion didn't want to leave his region, the region of the Gerasenes, because he had been assigned there and didn't want to become derelict in his duty. By the way, I always, I'm always encouraged in Daniel 10 to find out that Israel has an angel watching over them. Anybody know his name? It's Michael. And he's a good guy. Michael the archangel in Daniel 10 is the angel that watches over Israel. I love it. And so Luke adds something very significant that Mark, for whatever reason, leaves out. And that is that not only did these devils, these demons, uh, beg Jesus not to throw them out of their region, but they also begged Jesus not to throw them into the abyss, the abuso. And so the abyss is synonymous with the bottomless pit. Anybody remember Revelation chapter 20? We talked about it last year. And so in the future millennial kingdom, Satan will be taken and he'll be chained in the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is the abyss. These demons are crying out, don't send us to the abyss. I think it's also interesting in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 that Peter borrows a term from Greek mythology, Tartarus, and he says that right now there are literally angels, fallen angels, and they're being bound by chains, and they're underneath gloomy darkness, and they're waiting for judgment day. That's 2 Peter 2, 4. And so some angels, okay, remember we talked about Lucifer and a third of the heavenly host rebel against God, they're kicked out of heaven, well, some of them have been assigned different geographical areas around the world. Others of them did something so perverted and so horrendous, we don't have time to get into it, that God took them and he cast them into the abyss, the bottomless pit, Tartarus, it's all the same thing. And right now, 2 Peter 2, 4, they're chained under gloomy darkness awaiting for judgment day. And so they're screaming out, don't send us into the abyss. And now in verse 11, it says, there was a great herd of pigs that were feeding there on the hillside. And they, the demons, begged him saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. And so again, this happens on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now I'm gonna see if you guys have been listening. On the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, was it predominantly Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. And so these Gentiles on the east side had no qualms about raising pigs and eating pork. They're not like their neighbors on the west side, where according to Levitical law, you can't eat pork because you're a Jew. No, they're, they're Gentiles. And so because the demons didn't want to leave their region, because the demons didn't want to be thrown into the abyss, they are now begging Jesus, well, at least just, just cast us into the pigs. 
Now, is Jesus a Jew or a Gentile? He's a Jew. Does he eat pork? So maybe Jesus doesn't like pigs. <laughs> and maybe that explains what he's going to do right now in verse 13. And so he, Jesus, gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. I told you it would be a strange Bible study, right? And the herd numbering about how many? 2,000. This room seats, I think, 800 to 850. And so imagine two rooms, two of these rooms packed with pigs. That's how many pigs. And the demons, we don't know how many were inside of, of, of Legion. You might say 6,000, I think less, but there's many. And, and they're, they're all of a sudden, they, they hear the command of Christ come out, unclean spirit, they feel that their grip is being loosened on this poor man's soul. Next thing you know, they're being hurled into a herd of pigs. That's what it says in verse 13, and what happened at the end of verse 13 is they rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. And so as soon as these demons hit these pigs and went inside these pigs, it, they made this guy go crazy. They're making the, ki the pigs go crazy. They're confused. They begin to squeal, and 2,000 of them run down the hill, off a cliff, all the way down, splash into the Sea of Galilee. Look at verse 14. It says that the herdsmen fled. I think I'd run too. And told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see uh, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And so imagine all these people coming from the hills, right? What's going on? And they, they look down in the lake, and there's the pigs washed up on the shore. They look at the lunatic, but he's not a lunatic anymore. He's seated at the feet of Jesus. They look at the Lord, and the Lord is presiding over this whole thing, and they're absolutely in awe. It's like this is the craziest thing that they've ever seen in their lives. Now, before we talked about the six manifestations from this passage of demonic influence, and so this guy was self-destructive, he was violent, he was antisocial, he was fascinated with death, he was immodest, he had a loss of control. But now, did you notice in verse 15, he, he is touched by Jesus and he's a changed man. Did you see that? Don't miss that part. Look at verse 15 again. The second half of verse 15, it says that he's sitting there, where? Next to the Lord. And he's clothed. And not only that, it says that he's in his right mind. Okay, and so there's lots of evidences of a changed life. But from this passage, what are some evidences of a changed life? Well, number one, this guy had a desire to be near the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what I want to tell you. That if in a church service you say a little prayer and you think you have fire insurance, but your life doesn't change, and you don't begin following Jesus, you need to know that you just said a little prayer. That was it. But when you decide to repent, 
and put your faith in Christ alone. The Bible says that the Spirit of God comes inside of you. You're not religious. Now you have a relationship with the Lord. And he changes your desires. And before, you had no desire to go to church, no desire to read the Bible, no desire to pray. But now the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and so you actually have a desire to be near the Lord. David said in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Do you see how David was a changed man? David had a desire to be near the Lord. It's so crazy to me that on Easter Sunday, our, 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 our attendance here at Calvary doubles. And then the week after, it goes back to the, the, the normal size. Like, where, where do all those people go? Well, they're just doing the religious thing. C and E Christians. Christians. Christmas and Easter. That's it. They're, they're religious, but they don't have a desire to be near the Lord. And, and so my question is, have they met the Lord? Or did they say a little prayer? You see, when you meet the Lord, you have a desire to get into the Word of God, not just on the weekend, but every single day. You're in the Word, reading it. If you've really met the Lord, you have a desire to pray, not read some liturgy, but, but talk to the Lord like, like he's your daddy, and, I, and he loves you. If you've really met the Lord, then you have a desire, not just to say a prayer, but to actually believe and then be baptized, and then Acts 2.42, be devoted to a local church that loves and worships the Lord. The change comes, the desires change. And so I never say, if someone says a little prayer, well, you're, you're, you're definitely saved. Or well, I try not to say that. Because you may, make, you may make a profession and still not have a possession of the Lord. Not only that, there's a sense of modesty when you really meet the Lord. You see, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, and I quote, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. That's the word of God. And so if you've met the Lord and the Holy Spirit has come inside of you, then he changes your desires. Maybe before, and I don't know, um, I, I don't know you guys, okay? I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but maybe before the Lord, you know, you, you, you dressed in such a way to be sexually attractive. But now you've met the Lord, and the Holy Spirit, emphasis holy, lives inside of you. And so what happens is that your desires over time change, and now you're not... Um, revealing those areas of your body that really only your husband should be looking at. You're covering those areas of your body because the Bible says, God says, who lives inside of you, hey, I want you to dress in a modest way. Now you're not wearing skin-tight clothes in order to attract people, but you're dressing in a modest way. Why? Because he has come in and he's changing your desires. And you may be new to Christianity and new to church, and maybe um, you didn't know any of this stuff. What you need to know that is in this church, we're not gonna judge you. We're just saying, be who you are. Well, who am I? 
You're a child of the king. And so you should dress that way. And I'm talking to girls and guys. And not only that, but mental stability. This guy is in his right mind. It says in uh, 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, listen to this, and of a sound mind. That means when you come to the Lord, you really come to the Lord and he comes inside of you, he gives you a peace that surpasses all understanding. You're not all anxious all the time. You have a sound mind. And now, now you're beginning to make reasonable decisions and wise choices. And so the question is, are you saying yes to these traits or are you pushing them away? Look at verse 16. It says, and those who had seen it, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. So people are coming from all over the place, and those who witnessed it, by the way, this is a true story, are explaining to everybody what had happened, and you would think after they heard the story that they all would have been praising Jesus. Wow, aren't you awesome, Lord? You set this man free. Is that their response in verse 17? No, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And so in verse 18, Jesus gets in the boat and he sails away. What does that mean? Next point, that means Jesus doesn't force himself on anybody. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't force, he doesn't coerce, he doesn't manipulate. And these people, instead of celebrating the Lord, they rejected the Lord, and it still happens today. Today, what happens so often is that someone is set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're set free from some bondage to whatever sin, and they go to their friend, and they say to their friend, man, Jesus has set me free. And what's the response a lot of times? Well, hey, man, hey, bro, that's good for you. It's not good for me. And they reject the Lord. What did Jesus do when these people rejected him? He got in the boat and left. He sailed away. Why? Because he doesn't force himself on anybody. Please, please hear this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, forced love, is everybody looking at me? Because it's not love. But forced love is rape. God's not a divine rapist. We always, always, have a choice. And I would encourage you in this life, choose wisely. Bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Because in the next life, your choice is taken away. And on judgment day, the Bible says that in that day, every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it's better to choose now than later. Because later, it'll be too late. Here's our last few verses as we wrap it up. Hang on all the way to the end, okay? It says that as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in the what? You see that? In the Decapolis, those 10 pagan cities. They got an evangelist. He begins to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And so your last point is share how the Lord has set you free. Be like this guy. And so he's set free. He sees Jesus get in the boat. He runs to Jesus and says, wait, don't leave. I want to be with you. And what does the Lord say? Hey, it's going to be okay. Go back to your friends. Tell them how good the Lord has been to you and how the Lord has set you free. So what does he do? He goes to the Decapolis, those 10 cities, and he begins to share his testimony. And what's happening is he's sharing seed. And as he shares the seed, you need to know that in two chapters, end of chapter seven, beginning of chapter eight, guess where Jesus is gonna return? To the Decapolis. And Jesus is gonna minister. And so what this, this guy is doing is he's sharing his story, and then the Lord's gonna come later. Why? Because, listen to this, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the increase? God gave the increase. And so I wanna encourage you, have you been set free by Christ? Have you been set free from some sin that had you all bound up? If the Son has made you free, you're free indeed. Okay, share that with somebody. Psalm chapter 107 verse two says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And here's what's gonna happen this week, this month, this year, as you share about Jesus. And by the way, listen to this. You don't have to share the whole gospel and then force somebody, manipulate somebody to pray with you. If you're sharing the gospel and the door is open, keep sharing the gospel and the door's still open and they're ready to receive Christ, pray with them, praise God. But sometimes what you're doing is you're just sharing your story and you're planting a seed. And other people are gonna share their story and they're gonna water it. But God is sovereign over evangelism and he will save them when he's ready to save them. But we gotta be faithful to share our story. And it's not, I'm a religious person. It's, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we wanna help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on, I'm new here, then knowing Christ.